somebody says something you don't like, it doesn't turn into an educated forum. It starts to turn, it divulges into name calling, uh, attacks on a person's race, culture, even even attacking their family members. I've seen countless uh, Facebook battles, and that's why I tend to avoid it all. Personally, no, because like, on social media, like, I see it as more of a platform to like, just like joke about everything and some people they can't see those jokes yeah. and some people end up taking it seriously yeah mm -hmm. i feel like especially for millennials in a sense because that's where we are so i think that social media is a great way for us to understand what's going on and put our like word out there so. in a sense maybe i feel like it doesn't really get us any i don't know because i feel like our voices are heard but it doesn't get us anywhere like serious you know um, I think social media can be a uh, constricting uh, form uh, for deb debate, especially depending on the type of social media you're using. Um, if it's something like Twitter, uh, you can very much be dismissive and forget about the conversation completely and walk away. Uh, sometimes that's is the best thing to do, um, to whereas other times it's, you know, beneficial if you have something like YouTube where it's like, all right, let me at least just get my message out there. If people want to watch it, listen to it, great. If not, that's fine, but it's, it's there. If you want to know what I'm about, you know. So I think depending on how you use it, um, it's tricky, but I think in general, social media is a good thing for politics in general. I think it has like its pros and cons, because like, yeah, that's true, but also like, People will spread awareness about different issues as well through it that they wouldn't have gained otherwise because not everyone like listens to the news and stuff. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult with social media because you, you, you can hear the negative part and, and you try to go positive and they're like, it's all everyone jumping on everybody and it's sad, you know? No, we've got to have our freedom, you know, safe different things. Uh, yeah, that never ends well. Morning, guys. Okay, uh, I am starting with an announcement, and you want to hear this announcement, uh, even though it's not good news, but if you don't know it, you will be in trouble. Uh, somebody just came and whispered in my ear, all four back bathrooms are completely backed up, so we have no bathrooms available, so if you got to go, hold it. That's what I'm telling you, okay? We just uh, called an emergency plumber, they're on their way, and whatever. So if you've got to go to the bathroom, I apologize. And those of you who have little kids, you may be changing them when you get home. So <laughs> anyway, um, hey, uh, 
We are continuing in our awkward series. Um, we started out with the topic of money, and that was awkward enough. And then we moved on to sex, and that was significantly more awkward. And now we're into politics, which is the most awkward of all. It just keeps getting more awkward every week. Um, if you weren't here last week, let me bring you up to speed, because we started the politics side of things last week. And um, I want you to make sure that you've got principles down. You've noticed, hopefully, during this series, I have not been telling you details. You should do A, B, and C. I have not said you should give this much of your money to the church, and you should um, spend this on this, and you should you know, do this with your income. I just gave you some principles. I didn't give you a lot of details about uh, your sexuality. I just gave you principles. And uh, as it comes to politics, uh, if you're waiting for me to tell you who to vote for or who I voted for or anything like that, you're just going to keep waiting because that's not my point at all. What I want to do is give you principles by which you can make your own decisions on these things that glorify God and do it in a way that is biblical. So just by way of recap, uh, we start with the fact that there is a God and he's not me, right? There is a God. He created everything. And when he created everything, that includes us. And he designed the entire universe and he designed us to flourish in the universe. And then he gives us direction to help us flourish in the universe. And when we ignore his direction, not only do we not flourish, but we suffer, right? So we have a God who is a designer. He designed us. And of course, uh, it didn't take long before we started using our free will to decide to be our own gods and do our own thing. And as a result, we have what theologians call the fall. And we talked about this in depth last week. The fall means that when we turn our back on God, that's called sin. And when uh, sin takes over, it brings forth death. There is a destructive nature in sin. And sin is the problem, right? So, so we tried to hammer that home last week. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. Now, if sin is the problem, here's your pop quiz. What or who is the answer? Jesus. Oh my gosh, I thought you guys would be better. The first service was like, Jesus. Is anybody glad about this? <laughs> if, if sin is the problem, who is the answer? Yes, you guys, we're the light of the world, remember? Okay, Jesus is the answer, and who is responsible for carrying that answer to a world that is caught up in the darkness? We are, we are right? So God has, has saved us, not only as a gift to us, but he saved us as a gift to others who need to see him in our lives. So we become living examples of the goodness of God. We become living examples of the grace of God. We become living examples of the power of God to change lives and transform the world. So the problem is sin, Jesus is the answer, and we are the light of the world. And we're commanded to spread his light into the darkest parts of our society and our culture. So when it comes to this plan that God has to spread light into the darkness, plan A is the church. And there is no plan B. 
Plan A is the church, and there is no plan B. Either God is going to light up our lives and shine through us in the midst of dark lives and dark places and people who are suffering and people who are lost, or if we refuse to allow him to do that, the darkness is going to continue to be dark. Either the light of the world comes into the darkness and chases away darkness, or the darkness continues to be dark. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon 150 years ago put it like this. He said, the Bible is not the light of the world. It's the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And so here we are talking about politics and church. And you may be thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm not really clear on what politics has to do with spreading the light of the world. I mean, if you want to talk darkness, we can talk politics, right? I mean, politics in this country is about as dark a place as you want to go. So what does is, what is being the light of the world and politics have to do with each other? That's a great question. But before we dig into that, let me just clear something up. And I hinted at this last week, but I want to be absolutely clear. Even though when I preach, my messages are recorded within an hour after this second service, they are uploaded onto the internet and that worldwide web thingy, and it goes out to anybody in the world who wants to hear this. And so there are people all around the world, because I'm so famous and amazing, there, there are literally people all around the world. I get, um, I get uh, emails from uh, Korea. I get emails from the Philippines. I get emails from all over Africa uh, of people who are listening on Sundays to, to what I'm preaching. And the Word of God is going forth. So that, that being said, if you're listening to this in a different country, then this is going to leave you f feeling a little bit unsatisfied because uh, the group that I'm preaching to here is in America. And either you are an American citizen or you're living in America and dealing with the political system of America. And so I'm going to sort of focus my attention of my message today on politics in America and Christians in America. And so um, one of the things that we have to get straight right off the bat is that God is not an American. You probably should write that down. God is not an American. He does not place America's interests above the interests of all other nations. Now, some of you are thinking, man, the bathrooms don't work, and he's saying God's not an American. I'm out of here. <laughs> Hang in there. God does not bleed red, white, and blue, regardless of how you might see him. And he doesn't owe us anything because we're part of the United States. There's a really interesting passage in the book of Joshua, where Joshua is about to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, right? They've just crossed the Jordan River. They've uh, had their men circumcised. They've healed up from that. And now it's time to go into battle. And they're getting ready to go into battle against the mighty fortified city of Jericho with all of its mighty warriors. And Joshua is not very confident. He is not very sure that he can do this. And he's not very sure how it's going to happen. And he clearly has no idea about God's brilliant plan to march around around the city for seven days. And so he's not sure what's going to happen. And he's sort of dealing with all of that. And he looks up and standing in the distance right in front of him 
is a mighty warrior with his sword drawn. It would be like, it would be like if you looked up today and there was a, a Navy SEAL in full battle fatigue with a machine gun in his hands. He looks up and sees this mighty warrior. Now, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, let me, it's a spoiler alert. It's an angel. This mighty warrior is an angel and not just any angel, but the archangel Michael, the captain of the Lord's armies. And, and so this angel is standing right in front of him with his sword drawn. And Joshua's immediate response is to ask him a question. And it's the same question you would have asked him too, I guarantee you. He asks him this, are you for us or for our adversaries? You see a warrior like that, you want to know whose side he's on as quickly as possible, right? Am I supposed to fight you or am I supposed to embrace you? Are you one of us or one of them? Are you for us or for our adversaries? That's his question. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the angel's answer is no. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. Rather, I indeed come as captain of the host of the Lord. I am not on your side, and I am not on their side. I am on God's side, right? Now, this is the nation of Israel, (laughs) y'all. This is the nation of Israel. And if in this moment the guy says, God is not even on Israel's side then why in the world would we as Americans think that because we're American, God is on our side? God is no respecter of persons, the scripture says. He is no respecter of nations. So it is a fabulous thing to be an American. I am probably as patriotic as any person you will ever meet. I absolutely love this country, and I stand and sing the the, uh, national anthem as loudly as I can with my hand over my heart. I pray for our leaders. I am committed to this country. I would do anything to uphold the values and principles of this country. I am highly, 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 highly patriotic. That being said, God is not on our side because we're Americans. We are on God's side because we're children of God. And we are children of God before we're Americans or, uh, you know, uh, Mexicans or Puerto Ricans or Salvadorians or Zimbabweans or Ugandans or Chinese or Koreans or whatever else we might happen to be. We are Christians. And if you're a Christian, you are not primarily a part of the kingdom in which you reside on this earth. You're a part of another kingdom. So I'm all for patriotism. I think there should be a lot more of it in this country, to be honest with you. But if you're a Christian, you are not of this world. You are an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And, and we have to get that straight. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. In Philippians 3.20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In Ephesians 6.20, Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains as he writes this letter from jail as one who is being held, in his view, as a political prisoner because he's an ambassador from another kingdom and this kingdom does not like what he has to say or do. Folks, make sure you understand this. Your earthly citizenship is nothing compared to your citizenship in Christ. You are a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Why? Because he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1.13. So get it straight. If you're a Christian... You are first and foremost an ambassador because you're a part of the kingdom of God. You and I are on this earth in this great country, in this um, politically interesting state of California. We find ourselves here not as citizens, not as um, tourists, not as visitors, but as ambassadors. So we better ask the question, then what is the job of an ambassador? I'm so glad you asked. I happened to look it up. Here's what the job of an ambassador is. The role of an ambassador is to present and contend for the implementation of the values and interests of the kingdom he represents. That's the role of an ambassador. An ambassador doesn't go to a foreign country to be a, a tourist. He doesn't go to a foreign country so he can become a citizen of that country. He goes to that foreign country so that he can represent the interests of his own kingdom. What are the interests of the kingdom of God in the United States? That's what we're here to represent. Let me repeat myself. We are the light of the world. And we happen to have been sent by God to be ambassadors in a country that offers us unprecedented rights, unprecedented privileges, unprecedented freedoms. And, and if you've been anywhere else in the world, I have, I've been in five continents and I can tell you that everywhere I have gone, I have never seen a nation that has the kinds of freedoms and rights and privileges and prosperity that we enjoy so much that we take it for granted and complain about what we lack. America is an amazing place and God has had the foresight to plant us as ambassadors here. Now, I'm going to read you a quote and I want you to try to guess who said it. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state. It is never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. If the church doesn't recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. I'm just going to stop. The quote's not over, but oh my, that's good. I, I mean... I mean, the way that the church in America is seen by those outside of it is that we are an irrelevant social club that has nothing whatsoever to do with their lives. And, and, and without the prophetic zeal, 
we lack the power and the authority to have any kind of impact unless that changes. Listen, it goes on, quote, if the church does not participate actively in the struggle for peace and for economic and racial justice, it will forfeit the loyalty of millions and cause men everywhere to say that it has atrophied its will. That the church could lose millions of people if it doesn't have that prophetic zeal to actually stand up and be light. If we don't do that, it says in this quote that the world will look at us and go, they have no significance. I am not interested. And millions will walk away from the church. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, half of the articles that cross my desk have to do with the fact that we are losing generations of young people who in this day and age are saying, this church, this, this religion, this grouping, this organized group of Christians really has nothing relevant to say to my life. I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else. That's exactly what this speaker said. But, quote, if the church will free itself from the shackles of a deadening status quo and recover its great historic mission, will speak and act fearlessly and insistently in terms of justice and peace, it will enkindle the imagination of mankind and fire the souls of men, imbuing them with a glowing and ardent love for truth, justice, and peace. Men far and near will know the church has a great fellowship of love that provides light and bread for lonely travelers at midnight. Anybody want to guess who it was? No guesses? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The reverend... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in a sermon entitled The Knock at Midnight from the book of Luke, he preached it in June of 1967. <laughs> Fifty years ago, Dr. King looked upon his congregation and said, Hey guys, unless we become the light of the world, the world will disregard us and the message of the gospel will get lost because our lights went out. Listen, church, it is an incredible privilege to be a part of this great nation. As Americans, we are afforded the opportunity to speak out, to get involved, to vote for our representatives, to be a part of the solution when we see problems. This country, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, Christian, but this country was designed with us in mind. It was the assumption of the founding fathers that God's people would continue to act as ambassadors within this nation, that given all the freedoms, all the privileges, all the rights that are afforded to us as Americans, that the church would continue to be the light in this nation. And that, and that we would understand the difference between right and wrong, and we would live according to the scriptures, and because of that, the people in darkness would see the light. That, that a people who, who have these kinds of rights and have the Holy Spirit should be uh, a balanced, and, and that balance should be all of this freedom on the one hand, and all of this responsibility on the other hand. That we, would, that we would balance our 
freedoms with responsibilities and take seriously our role that we have to play in this society. Because if the church doesn't play its role in this American experiment, the experiment will fail because it is dependent upon righteousness. For example, while America is far from perfect, we do have great freedom. We do have great wealth. We do have great prosperity, all kinds of great opportunities. The founders wrote into law that those freedoms could not be taken away from us, but they also insisted that we use them appropriately and within the confines of the values of the kingdom of Christ. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. I collect these quotes. Let me give you a few. Patrick Henry said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, freedom, and the freedom to worship here. Did you get that last part? <laughs> In this day and age where we're, we're debating and arguing about uh, immigration laws and all of that kind of stuff, whatever your views might be on what the immigration laws ought to be, I can tell you this, it's incredibly complicated. But, but whatever those laws must be, the founders designed this nation so that the church would shine and would have the kinds of freedoms that would attract people to this nation and that when they came, they would be given asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship. John Adams put it this way. I don't have to tell you who these people are, right? You remember high school? Okay. Um, John Adams put it this way. Because we have no government armed with a power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, and licentiousness would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. And then listen, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He says, if we actually become as a people irreligious, and immoral, then our governmental system will fail us. Because when you're given this much freedom, it requires the balance of responsibility. And if we insist upon and take all these freedoms and demand all these freedoms and insist upon all these freedoms and march for all these freedoms and fight for all these freedoms, and we do all this kind of stuff because it's my freedom, it's my freedom, it's my freedom, it's my freedom. And I don't add to that the responsibility of righteous living and, and um, moral behavior, then this nation will fail because the government that was designed will be completely inadequate for a people who is not religious. Noah Webster wrote this. The Christian religion is the basis or rather the source of all genuine freedom in government. I am persuaded that no civil government of a republican form can exist and be durable in which the principles of Christianity have not a controlling influence. If the principles of Christianity do not influence our government, he says, not just our private lives, but our government. If the government is not influenced by the principles of Christianity, then America is doomed, according to Noah Webster in the 18th century. 
I could go on and on and on with similar quotes from the founding fathers. It is absolutely clear that while not all the founding fathers were Christians, the founders envisioned and designed a nation that was meant to be heavily influenced by the people of God because we are the light of the world. And they feared that if that ever ceased to be the case, the freedoms that we take for granted will actually be our downfall. And if the founding fathers were to look at America today, I think most of them would be appalled. Not just by what's happening in the capital, but by what's happening in the church. Because they counted on us. They counted on us to be ambassadors for Christ in the United States of America. Here's my point. We are here to change the world for the glory of God and the benefit of people. And we're failing miserably. So what can we do to turn the tide? Well, thankfully, we don't have to just make it up on our own. We have many examples. But let me give you what I think is an outstanding example in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 together. And in Acts chapter 2, what we see is an infantile church, right? Jesus has just ascended into heaven. He told them to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. There are 120 of them gathered in an upper room. Essentially, the church, 120 people. Essentially, a group this size in a room this size. And, and, and that's the church. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they become filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Lord begins to work in powerful and supernatural ways. And Peter stands up and preaches what looks, in the, when you read it, like the most boring sermon in the history of the world. And it's from the book of Joel, of all places. And he preaches from Joel. And 3,000 men are swept into the church that day, along with women and children. So numbering probably somewhere between five and 10,000 people got saved that day in a church that up until then was 120 folks. So I just want you to picture that. If somehow today... God just started bringing people and they were just gathered outside and we had a speaker on the outside of the building and the gospel went forth and some five to 10,000 people became Christians on that day, brand new baby Christians and they joined Grace Fellowship. You think that would upset our apple cart a little bit, right? That's what happened to these new believers, okay? So it's Acts chapter two, this new church is sort of trying to get its footing, right? And we're going to pick it up in verse 42, Acts 2, 42. They, meaning the church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word of God, and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing, uh, were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's not enough that they had five to 10,000 people join the church on the day of Pentecost, but every single day more people were getting saved and becoming a part of their number. 
Oh my goodness, there are no church, sem- no church growth seminars that can teach you how to do this. This is the Holy Spirit doing Holy Spirit stuff, amen? So, but I want you to pick up on the example that they have for us because that group of 120 people that became 10,000, they changed the world. We're here because of them. We are here because of their faithfulness, because they decided to actually be light in a dark world. And that light went on multi-generationally until at some point it's shown in your heart as well. That's why we're here. These guys changed the world. How? First of all, they put first things first. Look at verse 42 again. They were continually devoting themselves. I don't know if we continually devote ourselves to anything. They were continually devoting themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, that's the Bible, okay? The fellowship, that is weaving their lives together interdependently. It's not church potlucks, okay? It's more than that. Fellowship. And to the breaking of bread, which refers um, either and or to communion, and or the fact that they were taking their meals together with one another in each other's homes, which it says later, and prayer. That's what they were committed to, continually devoting themselves to those things. Listen, here's my point, guys. We can talk about strategy. We can sign petitions. We can march on Washington. We could preach on the street corners. We could do all that kind of stuff. But until Jesus Christ changes me, he's not changing anybody through me. Do you get that? He has to change me. It has to begin with me. It has to begin with the word of God getting into my heart. It has to begin with a life where, uh, where I spend time on my knees crying out before a holy God and getting to know him. It, it depends upon me having my life woven together with other believers. It depends upon me taking worship seriously. And, and until that is happening in me, Let's forget about what needs to happen in this world. And I'm serious, you guys. I think the church has failed miserably at this. We think the issue is that the world needs to change. And God says the church needs to change. His people need to change. And I'm not talking about changing techniques or style of music or how we do our church meetings. I'm talking about our hearts being changed. And so until we get first things first, let's just stop talking about what needs to change in this country. Let's get down to what needs to change in our hearts. Second thing, verse 45, it says, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with who? With all. (laughs) They were sharing them with any man. They were sharing them with everybody as anyone might have need. So if you were needy, they shared with you. They did good deeds. They took care of people. And they literally said, I'm going to trust God so much that I'm going to let go of some of all this extra that I've got and I'm not going to make it mine. I'm going to make it available to God because I'm here as his ambassador. It belongs to his kingdom. It exists for his glory. So I'm going to use what I have to meet the needs of the people he loves. And they started meeting needs. They started doing good deeds. They started getting out in the community and going, hey, what's going on with you? How can I help? And they just started meeting needs of people. And guys, until we start meeting needs of people, they're never going to take our message seriously. Even Jesus did it this way. 
How many lepers and blind men and, and uh, you know, dying people were on the side of the road crying out to Jesus? And he didn't turn to them and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He went over to them, put his hand on them, prayed for them and healed them and met their need. And then said, follow me. And they did. Guys, the body of Christ has become very weak at meeting needs. And you know the branch of the body of Christ that is busy meeting needs is generally speaking the branch that's given up on the Bible. That they've said, you listen, we just have to meet people where they're at. We, we, can't, we can't be bringing this message of condemnation and talking about sin. We have to make sure that we're feeding the hungry and all that kind of stuff, which is an awesome idea unless you never get to the gospel, which is what's happening in the liberal branch of the American church to the nth degree. But on the other hand, the conservatives, the people who hold up their Bibles and bring their Bibles to church and write in the margins and read them every day and take them seriously, for the most part, we're sitting in our Bible study groups doing nothing to meet the needs of people. And and God's word says that this church met people's needs at great sacrifice to themselves and the people paid attention. You know how I know that? Go down to verse 47. Uh, well, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Who do you suppose was being saved? The people whose needs were being met the people they were developing relationships with. So they took this approach. See, I just think, I just think too many of us American pastors and church leaders have got this whole thing backwards. We're going for church growth. We're defining success in terms of how big is your building, how many people are there on Sunday mornings, how big are your offerings, what, you know, what new foundations have you started and all that kind of stuff. We're going for church growth and we're skipping all the get your heart changed and meet the needs of people. We're just looking for strategies, man. Show me a way. Show me a way to get more butts in these seats because that's what makes me a good pastor. That's what makes me successful. Guys, we need to repent of that garbage. It's not about me building my church because the scripture said, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Guys, This whole idea that we got to grow the church and that's our first priority is absurd. You know what we need to do? We need to be godly and bless people and watch God grow the church. It's his church. So good deeds lead to goodwill among the people and that leads to good growth as people come to know Christ. And we've got it all backwards You want want me to give it to you in the simplest of terms I can? You don't even have to look this up because it'll take you forever to find this little book. Write it down in your notes. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Want to know how to please God? Want to know what the test is going to be on? He tells us right there, this is what the Lord requires of you. Do justice. Do the right thing. Stop making your own desires and your own will and your own perspective the the reigning perspective in your life. Do what's right. Do justice. 
love mercy. When you look at a hurting person, stop judging them and start serving them. Do justice, love mercy. And you have to do that in the context of humility, walking humbly with your God. Because as soon as you start thinking it's about you again, the justice goes away, the mercy goes away, and you're just doing building your own kingdom. And you're not a kingdom builder, you're an ambassador. Now listen, there's a lot of ways to pursue those values, justice, mercy, and humility. But most of them are not church programs. They have to do with real people loving God and loving people in practical ways so that through us, God can change the world. And you know what? Here's what I'm trying to get at, and we'll wrap this up. Politics can be a big part of that. See, some of us have this idea that, that Christianity is over here and the political system is over here because Christianity is holy and noble and good and the political system is corrupt and dirty and filthy. And, and that's the darkness and we're the light and the two never shall meet. But what does the scripture say? We are the light who's supposed to go into the darkness, right? What does he say? He says, um, let your good deeds be seen by men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your father who's in heaven. Put your light on a table, Jesus says. Don't hide it under a bushel. Do the right thing. And politics can be a big part of that. Here's the big principle. Remember, we talked about this in week one of this series. The principle is stewardship. You are not an owner of your own life. You're a steward. And your job is to do as an ambassador what the king would have you do. You represent him. So think about stewardship. We talked about it with money. I'm not going to tell you how much to give. Here's what I'm going to tell you. All your money belongs to God. Do what he wants you to do with it. We talked about stewardship with sex. He said, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies, right? And we talked about the practicality of stewardship as sexual beings. Now let's talk about it as political entities. Guys, we must not waste the incredible gift of the rights and the privileges that we have as Americans. We take it for granted. As Americans, we have a lot of money. Now listen, I, I wrote this next part for myself. Because just last night or the night before, I was in a long, almost heated exchange with another brother in Christ about this very issue. I was arguing about how important it is for us to have tax cuts and stop having the government pay for everything and yada, yada, yada. And you know what occurred to me? Oh my gosh. How about if I stop arguing that the government has taken too many of my taxes how about if I stop arguing that the government is not doing a good job of meeting the needs of people? And how about if I admit that even after taxes, I'm rich and I do something with what I've got and I start meeting the needs of people because the government is not the light of the world. We are the light of the world. So, so we have all this money. How about we use it? We, 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 how about we, we use our right to vote I know you've, if you're born in America, you're like me. It's like, yeah, I mean, we, of course we have a right to vote. Do you know nobody else has that? Like most of the world would kill for it. And many have died for it. We have the right to choose our own governmental representatives. How about we get out and vote for people who represent Jesus Christ and his values? You know, it's amazing. Just over half of, of Americans vote in presidential elections. Presidential elections. 
Only about a third of people vote in local elections. And that's where our votes can make a difference. I'll give you an example. We're right here in the city of Duarte, right? Let me give you this, the example of Duarte. You realize that in the last Duarte city election, 7,000 people voted. 7,000 people in the city of Duarte voted in the last city election. It was a big city election. It was one of the biggest turnouts they've ever had. 7,000 people voted. And one of the things that the Duarte city officials have just done is that they've divided the city into seven electoral districts. So from now on, in, in, uh, if you live in the city of Duarte and you vote for city issues, you will be voting as a member of one of your seven districts. You will, you will elect a councilman from one of your seven districts, whatever district you live in. There's about 7,000 voters who voted, right? There are seven districts. That's roughly 1,000 votes per district. You know what that means? That means that if you wanted to run for city council in the city of Duarte, all you would need is three to 400 votes to become a city councilman. You don't think the body of Christ could muster three or 400 votes to get people in the city council who care about the things of God or the school board? But we sit back and curse the darkness instead. Now listen, getting involved in politics is just one suggestion. But whether you get involved politically or in some other way, we have a bunch of people in this church who are coaching little league teams as a ministry. We have people in this church who are taking food to the homeless down in the river. I know some of us drive over that bridge and look out there and go, I wish we'd get rid of those people. Then some of us pack up food, blankets, socks, clothing, and take it down and give it to them in the name of Jesus. We have people doing all kinds of stuff that are not church programs at all. Some of you are volunteering in crisis pregnancy centers. Some of you are volunteering in soup kitchens. Some of you are just starting your own thing. Whatever it is that you're doing, those are what I'm talking about. You don't have to run for office, but you do need to get involved. It is high time that the people of God stand up and start to act like the light of the world that Jesus said we're supposed to be. Do you remember the song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Come on, you know the song. This little light of mine. You guys are awful. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let... Okay, we're done. Okay. Listen, I sang that song off key for a reason, because I have a bad singing voice. No, I sang that song for you because I want it stuck in your head. You can thank me at four o'clock in the morning. Okay. I want that little song stuck in your head. You know why? Because you may not have a big light. You may not be holding a torch that lights up the whole area, but if the Holy Spirit lives within you, if you are a child of God, you carry the light of God, and together we are the light of the world. Will we let our light shine, or will we sit back and curse the darkness while millions fulfill Dr. King's prophecy and leave the church because they see us as irrelevant and hypocritical and not um, fill, fulfilling the purpose for which God has called us. I was in Sacramento a month ago meeting with some of our state leaders. They gave me this piece of paper. I know I'm out of time. I'm going to tell you anyway. These are some of the bills that are sitting in our state assembly or Senate right now waiting to pass. SB 320, free abortion medication on campus. 
Okay, that means on high school and college campuses, abortion pills, morning after pills will be handed out to girls free of charge if that bill passes. AB 1250, restrictions on nonprofits, which make it much harder for government entities to be involved with nonprofits in any way, shape, or form. SCR 41, the Children's Bill of Rights, which says in essence that it is no longer should be parents who have the right and responsibility to raise their their children as they see fit in a non-abusive way. But if the state disagrees with them, the state should give these uh, rights to the children so that they can run their own lives. HR 71 is a celebration of Roe versus Wade, and it urges the president to support the fundamental right of abortion and access to sexual health care by Planned Parenthood and to fund it. AB 1779, illegal to talk about alternatives to LGBT lifestyle. This bill would make it illegal for any professional counselor, religious or otherwise, while meeting with a mentally handicapped person who wants to be in the LGBT lifestyle to even tell them there is an option. It would be illegal. Proposition 57, Sex offenders released onto the street in massive numbers. These are just six of the bills that are right now in the state house waiting to be voted on by a uh, assembly and senate that is without question the most um, morally, not just politically, but morally liberal um, government house in America. And we are ambassadors to California. And we have a light. Good deeds lead to goodwill, lead to God changing the world. You have the light. What are you going to do? Let's stand and pray together.